You're listening to Pastor Mike Greiner of Harvest Community Church in Catanning, Pennsylvania. We pray that you will be challenged today as you listen to a sermon entitled Making the Bricks, based on Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20. For more information, check us out on the web at harvestpa.org. Let's join Pastor Mike as he preaches. John chapter 11, uh, Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me. Though he were dead, yet shall he live. Eighteen years ago, I had the privilege of baptizing my mother. I found out just before coming here that she was worshiping. With an unveiled face. And it changes nothing in my sermon. Because I am confident of this very thing. That Christ died for sinners. Whosoever believes in him, though they are dead, yet shall they live. And anyone who believes in him will never die. Do you believe this? It is easy to trifle with the word of God because our lives are mundane. We have to brush our teeth. You can't sit around thinking about the glories of heaven every second when you have to wipe noses or drive cars or pay bills. But there is always a God who sees what matters and looks out for us. And he sent his son to die for us. So it's a good reminder at the beginning. We're going through a series on discipleship. I want you to know that at times, me standing up here yelling at you about whatever the scripture says, if you know me well, you know that I'm not mad at you. Some of you don't know me well. You wonder, is he saying, you're failing. Listen to all these rules you have to follow. I want to assure you that the Bible is good news for bad people. It's good news for messed up people. That's the whole point. Imperfection is what we all bring to the table when we hear the word of God. So let the grace of God be upon you, the same grace that is with me now. As I point out that the church is not a building. It's just not. It's the people. But buildings need to be built, and so do 
So does the church. <laughs> but you don't build it with tools that build buildings. You build it with tools that build humans. And the number one tool is the Word of God. The number one worker is the Holy Spirit of God. But we must cooperate with Him. Why? Because He asked us to. You say, well, can He do it Himself? To which I'd say, quit complaining. <laughs> if He asked us to, we should just do it. So we are all have a part in praying. We all have a part in telling people the good news of the gospel because moms die, dads die, children die, grandchildren die, brothers die, sisters die, husbands die, wives die. But Jesus says we all live through him. So we must tell that. And we must all work to help each other along so we all finish with faith. And so we all have to work on discipleship, right? Jesus' last words, according to Matthew, which means they don't, we don't know what his absolute last word was, because in fact Luke gave us some, some things he said that he might have said right after that. But the reason they matter is because the Holy Spirit inspired Matthew to say, this is the part I want you to get. And those words have been labeled, not by the Bible, but by us after, throughout history, the Great Commission. Co-mission, on mission, co-with God. And here's what Jesus says. Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples. Not Christians, not church members, not people who show up on Sunday and play a silly game where they think they're getting some kind of points, some sort of antiseptic on their sin-sick souls that they can apply once in a while by listening to a sermon, mouthing a song, and going home and nothing changing. He doesn't say that. He said make disciples. It's a very different thing. It's a 24-7 job. And these 12, gosh, we have to do that? Yep, of all nations. Can we leave some out? Nope. How do we do it? By baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. One God, three persons. Tell them. And when they agree, those who agree, baptize them. It's your symbol that they've died with Christ and they're alive with Christ. That he, they understand that they are sinners. They've lowered themselves and repented of sin and said, Jesus, you have died to take away my sin. But don't leave them there. Teach them to observe all I have commanded you. That's not just doctrine. It's so important that we have good doctrine. In the fall, we'll be starting 1 Timothy. And Paul's very clear with Timothy. Stop those false teachers. It's so important. And you won't get anything right if your doctrine's not good. However, the goal is not doctrine. The goal is to teach you to observe all he commanded, which requires good doctrine. Good doctrine leads to good behavior. Good doctrine leads to love. Good doctrine leads to relationship. Good doctrine leads to community. There are some people who have what we would call perfect orthodox doctrine. Whole churches full of them, and they are the meanest, most obnoxious Christians you'll ever meet. Some of you have met individuals like that. They've got their doctrine so down, they'd correct St. Peter if he was in the room. And they've certainly corrected you. 
And the last thing you feel is the love of Jesus as they pull it off. Because it's incomplete. It's important to be right, but it's important more so to observe all I've commanded. And that is an ongoing project for me and for you, and therefore for your neighbor. Which kind of implies patience, doesn't it? Nevertheless, these 12 apostles, or 11 now, I mean, one fell out, we had already one, one guy quit. <laughs> Judas, they have a big job. Make disciples of all nations. How do we do that? Well, evangelize, baptize, and then teach them what I did. <sighs> There's 11 of you, better get started. I want to ask one question and answer it. And some of you, many of you, are going to know the answer before I uh, even start to answer it. But that's okay. It just means you've been a Christian a while and you get how this stuff goes. But God will still speak to us in this, I think, because his word is throughout. This question is this. Who is responsible for the disciple-making mandate now that the apostles are gone? I mean, obviously he told the apostles, you got to do this. They're there listening to him. But now they're gone. Well, maybe no one has to make disciples. No one. I once, when I was a new pastor, I sat with a very good-hearted man, a very good-hearted man, but he was not trained properly in church for years. And he asked me a very honest question with humility. It was not a bad question. I don't see anywhere in the Bible where it says I am supposed to preach the gospel. It seems to say they were supposed to. He's making a good point. Jesus is talking to them, isn't he? Who is responsible for the disciple-making mandate today? First answer, the church must raise up, rise up, whichever is the correct tense, leaders who will teach, and attend to disciple-making, who will oversee the process on a local level. Disciples of Christ, followers of Christ, Christians, with a variety of Christian I'm calling disciple, which cuts out everyone who doesn't follow Christ but calls himself a Christian. Disciples without leaders are not a church. You can gather two, four, six, eight, ten, a hundred, two hundred people. If they're, you can go to a Christian concert where lots of Christians are in the room and Christians are on the stage singing and talking. It's not the church. It's parts of the church. It's not a church. In order to be a church, you must have leaders. And you must have structure. Now, our, our society doesn't like those things these days. I know it. I know it. And that society pushes into the church. You can find all kinds of websites which will tell you don't go to the organized church. You run into these people. Well, I'm a Christian, but I don't need the organized church. It's like, what if you ran in, what if a mother ran into her kid? I'm a member of the family, but I don't need the organized family. Your rules, you got bedtime screwed up. Your meal plan is horrible. I mean, your prohibitions on sugar most of the day, these got to go. I mean, it's oppressive. And let's face it, you and dad don't get along all the time. You're hypocrites. So I'm going to leave. It's stupid. 
Something well, the church is so imperfect. I never found a perfect church. Listen, if you find a perfect church, I mean perfect, and you join it, don't you think you just did them the greatest disservice in the world? <laughs> if I find a perfect church, I'm leaving it be because I'll know I'll mess that up because I bring mess with me. I don't know about you. But there must be leadership and there must be structure. There must be someone to oversee teaching, stop false teachers, present good teachers, exhort people to good work, manage the level of work that is organized and not just organic. There is organic work that happens. In other words, people just do. But there does need to be some sort of organized structure for the supplying of workers and missionaries and sending them and figuring out how we're doing things. There needs to be Someone to correct poor behavior in the church sometimes, and always someone to set a good example. Paul said this to Titus in the pastoral epistle, which is a fancy word for letter to a pastor. In chapter 1, verse 5, he says, that's why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remain into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. I left you there because we need plural elders in every town. That's the pattern of the church from the beginning, that elders would lead. Here I must stop and, and just touch on the word elder. The word elder is, is uh, it's translated differently in different translations of the Bible. Um, there's two words in Greek that have the same meaning. They're used interchangeably in the New Testament. One's... Uh, Presbyteros and one's Episcopos. And by the way, you might think of denominations that have stolen those words because I like them so much, the Episcopalians and the Presbyterians. Both of them mean the same thing. Overseer, sometimes translated bishop, it's your leader. And there is no such thing, well, there's one time in the Bible that a leader of a church is called a pastor. One time. And, uh, and it is hooked with teacher. So I think that's an elder, because a pastor, teacher, he's shepherding, caring, managing, and he's teaching. I think the two go together. Um, we use the word pastor most. That's okay. I'm not going to try to change the language. The word pastor, though, in the Bible, actually the word pastor is never used in the Bible, because the word in Greek is shepherd. So even where it says pastors and teachers, it could be and probably should be translated shepherds and teachers. So... The office of shepherd is really the office of elder. And here is from the very beginning, Paul saying, I went to Crete, we made a bunch of churches, and now you need elders in those churches. That's how we're going to do this. Paul and Barnabas went on a missionary trip, and, uh, on their, and they, everywhere they went, they made disciples, and they gathered those disciples into churches. We don't know how big those churches were, no doubt most of them were house church size, but probably some of them were big, too big for a poor guy's house. There's evidence in Corinth that they were meeting in the rich guy's house because it was the biggest. And then they, would, they went on their mission trip, planted a bunch of, churches, bunch of churches, then on their return back to their home church in Antioch, they stopped back at them. And watch what they did in Acts chapter 14. When they had preached the gospel to that city... And had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and Iconium and to Antioch, 
strengthening the souls of the disciples. They see it's an ongoing process. Well, we got you saved. You're good now. No, no. They stick with it, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. These guys are never going to be good TV preachers. Right there, that sentence rules them out. There are some good TV preachers, by the way, but not many, and that's a fact. Anyone who is not willing to say to you that you enter the kingdom of God through many tribulations, just be careful. You know, that's why Christians are so disillusioned. You have TV preachers saying you're going to be blessed. Then you have the suburban preachers and churches like ours. I don't think this church does that, but in your regular church, who tries to do therapy on you all the time? I know you're sad. But Jesus is here for sad people. I know you need therapy. I know you need to learn. And we just kind of wimpy eyes. Listen, the Bible ain't wimpy. Life's tough. That's what it says all the time. And it doesn't say the next thing. Well, I'd probably say, so suck it up, cupcake, because it's a little more compassionate than me. <laughs> but the point is still there. It's hard. But you know, that's the way into the kingdom of God. Anyway, that sermon is not this sermon, but I couldn't stop myself. And when they, and, and this is the part I wanted us to see. When they had appointed, watch, watch your number. Watch uh, the plurals and singulars here. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church, with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they believed. So they went back to all the churches that they had just planted months ago, some maybe perhaps a year. And they, they said, every church, singular, gets elders, plural. The New Testament pattern was always that the local church was led by a multitude of humans. Not one pastor who's the king, the emperor. We have, we have often had churches where you got one guy, and he's, he's the guy. And everyone either is trying to do what he says, or usurp him because they don't like what he's doing. And it's never been the biblical pattern. It, it's always been plural elders in each church. No church of any size should imagine that only one man is to do the job of leading. Now, that's my statement, not the Bible, so let me add a little bit of a caveat to that. Church planners have to plant a church, so it may seem like there's one guy for a while, but even so, I'm not going to be legalistic if a guy goes out and plants a church, and for a while he's the only guy, okay, I'm not going to judge him, but I would say the example of the missionaries in the Bible is Paul never went alone. It's Paul and Silas, Paul and Barnabas, Paul and Timothy. He always had someone with him. He never even planted a church alone. Let me keep building on that. Church health requires the growing number of elders. You have to grow the number of elders. Um, a, a short explanation. Harvest, we have like 18 or 19. I can't remember. Many of them you know as pastor. Me, Rodney, Kevin, Scott, Fred, Fred, um, Matt, whoever else, Mike. I, don't, I shouldn't have said any because now if I leave someone out, they're going to hit me up in staff meeting and say, you forgot me. Dave. 
Thank you, Holy Spirit. Got it. But we have more elders who are not vocational. In other words, they don't. The Bible says that the ones who preach the gospel have the right to make their living from the gospel. So from the beginning, the idea of giving someone their living off of doing what I do has been there. But from the beginning, it's also been the habit to have some who don't get their living from the gospel. And so we got a bunch of those. Now, to say that, I say this, that if the church is going to grow, it needs to grow the number of leaders. It needs to grow, and I mean specifically elders. How do you grow elders? You don't, (laughs) you're looking for who God has called. Because, see, we're a very flat structure under God. There's one king, his name's Jesus. There's one head, it's Jesus. The rest of us are parts. So you don't elevate a man to leader. You don't elevate an elder. Because they stay at the same level. You actually look for whom God has called, because he hasn't called everyone, but he's called some. This is your job. And what are you looking for? The qualifications are in the Bible. So what we look for is men who are already doing elder-like things without being asked. They're living a holy life. They're raising a godly family. They seem concerned about the spiritual health of others, but not just concerned to the point that they want to do something about it. They want to teach the person who's wrong to be right. They want to help the ignorant grow in their knowledge of Christ. They want to encourage the person who's sad and ready to quit. They want to reach out with the gospel and they begin to want to manage a process of that. And you don't have to have an office. You will see that if you look at a church. You'll see people with that gifting start to rise up and do it. And then you've got to go test them and see, is this this an elder God is called? And I am saying to you that any church, (laughs) that a church that's going to be healthy requires a number... You got to be always growing more elders. There's no other way to put it. I would go farther and say producing elders should be the faithful, organic, and regular result of the workings of the church and of the elders that are there. Look what 2 Timothy, we'll see this cycle right here in 2 Timothy. When, when Paul writes Timothy, he says, As you then, my child, and by my child, do not think that Timothy is a novice. By this point, he has spent a lot of time working with Paul, and he. Um, He's very experienced. And he says, Be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus, and what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses. Here you see Paul saying, The the data that you've gathered from being with me, seeing me, listening to me. And he also puts in the presence of many witnesses, because Paul never worked alone. Entrust this to faithful men. You're leading churches. Get faithful men in the church who will have what I've taught you. Then look at the next step. And those faithful men will be able to teach others also. So you have the cycle. So we see that the mandate, the commission, the great commission given to the apostles, the apostles started handing it off right away to leaders in the local church, to elders. A church not producing elders is like a body with a fatal disease. It's just a matter of time till it dies. And churches die all the time. And let me uh, speak even more candidly about harvest elders. Each elder at harvest must not only see it as his responsibility to evangelize, look for every opportunity to tell people about Christ, 
and to teach others, they, they had better actively be doing so. Well, they need to say, maybe it's not my calling. That's the, the guys who do it vocationally and non-vocationally. We should have no room for elders who don't actively share their faith and teach others. That's what you do. It's the job. That's why so many churches, you'll have elders who just, their job is to meet, do administrative things, and yell at the pastor. Those aren't really elders. Those are just an annoying group of people. (laughs) And not just doctrine. We don't just teach doctrine. We teach, Jesus didn't just teach doctrine. He did, obviously. All our teaching comes from him. But he traveled with his guys. He talked with his guys. He ate with his guys. He laughed with his guys. He hung out at Mary, Martha, and Lazarus' house. Kicked off his sandals and stuck his feet up on the stool with his guys. He ministered in front of his guys. He got them to do things that they never thought they would do, that he used to do. It's the whole package. Teaching in others involves teaching by example, loving. Really, the word here is relationship. There is no such thing in the Bible as a church that does not grow by leaders building relationships with other people. And all other people, but right now I'm focusing on other elders. There's, there's people who say, well, I don't need to go to church. I just watch Charles Stanley at home. Listen, if you're watching Charles Stanley at home, can I tell you something? You are guaranteed a good sermon. I would watch Charles Stanley at home if he's preaching now, but I'm not home. But what they're saying is they're reducing what they call their Christian life to an education that doesn't require relationships. It just requires the transfer of data. You know, why does multi-site, people say, I heard one guy say, well, why would I watch a guy on a screen when I could just watch TV at home? I'm like, if you're just going to church to hear the message, most people go to church don't talk to me afterwards. Heck, you're, you're, a lot of you people here are like, I'm so happy he's not the kind who walks to the door and shakes your hand and makes you all wait. <laughs> so whether I'm on a screen or I'm live, you're just getting data and leaving? Is that, is that the goal of church? Is that the goal of gathering as a group and worshiping God? Praying together, loving one another, taking communion together? Is that the goal? No. See, you see why? It's because church is about relationships. It always has been. You say, well, that hasn't been the churches I've gone to because the churches you've been going to are not the one doing it right. I don't know how to say it. Or you're not doing it right. Often the church is building relationships, and you may have gone to one that did it, but you just said, I'll just sit in the back, sneak out. I don't want to talk to nobody. So it wasn't the church's fault. It was yours. And an elder leads with relationships. Um, First Timothy as you can see, I'm already studying First Timothy for the fall, so I might have all of it covered by the time we get there, and we'll just move on to another book. But 1.5 says, the aim of our charge is love. Another translation makes that word charge instruction, and that's a legitimate translation. The aim of our instruction is love. Wait, I thought the aim of your instruction 
is instruction. No. Love. It's, a, it's an active relational situation. If elders don't do their job, teach the church, protect against false teachers, make disciples. Think about this. In any church, in any church, if the elders aren't going to teach the church, manage the church, love the people, handle the conflicts, but especially protect against false teachers, make disciples, is it likely anyone else in the church is going to do the job? Is it? If the guys who are supposed to be in charge don't do it, let's say no. Then what happens to Jesus' great commission? The apostles said, here, take the baton. They went, So first, it's the elder's job to do the great commission. Now, some of you are going, I thought I was going to say it was ours. I can tell you're new to church. (laughs) Because all the regulars saw this one coming. They saw point two coming right, right with the introduction. It's not just the elder's job. Every disciple has a part in making disciples. All followers of Jesus should be involved in disciple making, sharing the gospel to unbelievers and teaching at some level by example and even just opening a Bible and say, look what this says, brother. Look what this says, sister. And in different situations, there are saints who are a part of Harvest Community Church who if you go to them with your problem, their first response will not be, why don't you go ask Pastor Mike or Pastor Scott? Their response will be, well, the Bible says this, or let me pray for you. Okay, those saints are doing their job. You say, well, I need, I need, I had one guy at First Baptist that says, well, I need the big kahuna. (laughs) He was old-timey Baptist. I'm the big kahuna, apparently. And so I always made time for him, but when I could. But he was missing. Look, when you want someone to pray for you, who do you want to pray for you? Well, I want the pastor. That's a mistake. What you want is the one the Holy Spirit puts in front of you who has faith in the moment where you are. That's what you need. Anyway. I'm preaching before I read the text, so let's, let's read the text. Peter taught us this. Even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, and he's not talking to the leaders, he's talking to everyone in church, including the leaders. Even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you'll be blessed. Have no fear of them. He's talking, by the way, to a church that the early uh, believers in Jerusalem especially but suffering Christians already in the first century were, were, were suffering because what they believed was completely at odds with the culture. And whenever the culture heard it, they got mad at them. They'd beat them. They'd kill them. They'd at least be mean to them. Every once in a while, someone became lion chow. And the reason I bring that up now is because your culture is looking kind of like that these days too. And I think the knee-jerk response is go on Facebook and triumph about how smart you are as a Christian and, and how much idiots everyone else is and hang your hat on some secular political figure who hates God and pick your candidate, they're both there, to save you. And then we're just obnoxious big mouths with no God. But... If we would follow Peter's advice, he says, have no fear of them. Maybe you wouldn't be so mad if you weren't so afraid. But look what's happening in the world. Get over it. I love my nation, but this ain't my nation. I mean, I love America. I'm thankful for it. 
But I don't know if you realized it. I serve the king of all the nations. <laughs> and he says, I'm a citizen of his kingdom. Get over it. Here's what you're supposed to do. Have no fear. Stop being afraid. Stop te- teaching your children, oh, be afraid. Listen, I don't want communism. Communism never works because man is evil. You give one guy a chance to divvy up, he's going to take for himself and oppress the rest. It's the worst possible system. But if we get there, which I don't want, don't be troubled, children. You have a God. He'll show you the way. In your hearts, instead, honor Christ. Instead, honor Christ in your hearts as the Lord, as holy, and always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason. That, why are you so cheered up? Don't you see we're going to hell in a handbasket? We're not going to hell in a handbasket. There is someone who rescues us from the handbasket named Jesus. Look whose job it is to tell someone. Yours. You get to do it. It's your job. You're doing the Great Commission now. You're doing the necessary step that leads to baptism. But look how you're supposed to do it. Do it with gentleness and respect. Gentleness and respect. One of the reasons I'm not on Facebook and haven't been for two years, it's been one of the happiest things of my life, is because I'm really into truth and I love to debate. And I would find two things happen. One, I'd hate myself because sometimes I'd get carried away in my anger. I have to delete stuff and apologize to people. Say, Mike, stop it. But worse, the ugliness of Christians with all their fighting and bickering, getting nothing done. Oh boy, you planted your flag. Peter says, do it with gentleness and respect. One thing I'll say about, I prayed today before coming up here, I want to be like my mom and how she treated humans. By the grace of God, even before she was a Christian and after, she treated everybody with value and let them stand or fall on their own. So should we. Gently and with respect. Look at the example of the first believers. Um, Saul, who would become Paul, was in a bad way. He wasn't sleeping well at night. He was grumpy, and he was killing all of us when he could. And it says in Acts 8, And Saul approved of Stephen's execution. Stephen was a big shot for us, one of our heroes. Whoa, the ministry he would have had if he hadn't died. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the region of Judea and even Samaria. That's there all over their country. Except the apostles. The apostles felt a need to stay in Jerusalem and hunker down and live through the persecution. I don't know if it was wise or not, but they did. That means everyone left except the 11 guys who were given the great commission. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him, but Saul was ravaging the church, entering house after house. He dragged off men. He dragged off women. He committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered went about doing what? Doing what? Where were the apostles? Back in Jerusalem. It's everyone's job. Everyone's job. But then you have to teach them to obey. It's not just the elder's job. It's not just the elder's job. Look, all of us who've been a Christian, even for a few weeks, 
definitely for years. How's your journey? Has it not taken help from others? Aren't we all got a little bit of Beatles in us? Get by with a little help from our friends. I mean, we have our own responsibility to come to Christ, to die every day, to devote ourselves to Christ. But let's not get proud and think we can do this thing without help. God designed us to need relationships and need people to help us. And if I think back in my brain over the last, uh, I'm doing math on the fly, always mistake, 32 years since I've been a Christian, I can think of many people who have helped me along the way. This woman, when I was depressed, this man, this person who rebuked me, who was a brother, this person who showed me by example how to do this or that, this person who taught me. There's a lot of them, and I'm very grateful for those people. Many of them don't even realize the impact they have. You can tell them, and they don't get it. You changed my life at the moment I needed you. And almost none of them are pastors. And you, you have those people, don't you? In your memory, people have helped you along, don't you? Well, that means you have the potential through the Holy Spirit in you. Say, well, I can't do it. Why can't you? What makes you think I can preach a gospel sermon? I'm a sinner. I tell you guys all the time that he saved a sinner when he saved me. I just trust that if I present the word with love and a sincere heart, God will do the work. Why can't you do that? You can do that. Knowing that, you're commanded to do that. I want to do an experiment with you to show you this. And this isn't all skate. Remember, for those of you who don't know, skating rings are kind of out, and, in, and inline skates are obviously safer. But when I was a kid, we had skate. This is not a big deal, but just to tell you because I enjoy being myself in front of you. The, um, you're 12 years old. You think you're really concerned about the girls one minute. Then the next minute, you're just concerned about skating fast, laughing at your friend who fell down and trying not to fall down. And you're skating and skating and skating in a circle. And then some yo-yo on the PA system says, time for a couple skate, and you've got to get off the floor. <laughs> and finally they go, now for an all-skate. Then we all can get out there. This is an all-skate, friends. So if you'd open your Bibles, if they're not already open, to 1 Thessalonians. This is interactive. You're going to have to do a little work. If you have a paper Bible, you're going to love me because people with paper Bibles will find this the easiest. But if you have an electronic Bible, like I do, there's still ways to pull this off. If you have no Bible at all, get in the habit of always having a Bible with you, especially on Sundays or Friday nights. (laughs) 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. If you have a paper Bible or the other kind, here's what I want you to do. We're going to go through 1, 2, 3, 4, 5 verses in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. And as we do, I want you to note down by underlining or circling or however you want to do it, each of the things that Paul commands directly to the leaders of the church. So you're going to find the exact things that Paul says to the leaders of the church. You do this specifically to them. Now, any command in the Bible is to the leaders of the church because it's to all the members of the church. I want you to find the one specifically to the leaders of the church. And then make some other kind of notation for something that's for everyone in the church. You ready? Ready? We're going to start in verse 11. Just ready? 
You're looking for things specifically to the leaders of the church, and then you're looking for things that are for everyone else. Maybe you underline one and circle another. Starting in verse 11, therefore encourage one another. See, there's a thing. And build one another up, just as you are doing. We ask you, brothers, to respect, there's a lot of commands in this, respect those who labor among you and who are over you in the Lord and who admonish you. And to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle. You see someone who's, who's, who, who could be working but instead is taking the charity of the church. When those funds could be used somewhere else, tell them, move. Get going. Or they're being lazy about their faith. Encourage the faint-hearted. Those who are ready to quit. Remind them of the resurrection. Encourage. Help the weak. Be patient with them all. See, I'm going very slow, so you have time to underline, that no one repays evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another, and not just one another, to everyone. Okay, what did you find out? Did you find out it was a trick? Because it was a trick. Not a single one of those commands is aimed at the leaders specifically. Not one. This is a letter to the Thessalonians. Not at a single point did he say, this is what your leaders do. So let's, let's review. <laughs> that means all church members have to do, I found 12 commands. None directly to leaders. I mean, they're two leaders, but no more than they are to anyone else. One, encourage one another. Are you doing that? Or are you just going to sneak in, sneak out, and maybe pay your dues? Two, build up one another. Not going to gossip, not going to lie, not going to talk about all the things I don't like about my campus pastor's plaid shirts. <laughs> that was a joke. It's completely a joke. <laughs> and he, my particular campus pastor just walked in. I thought he'd be hiding out longer so I didn't get away with that one. I won't look at him. <laughs> I guess I just violated this one. Respect your leaders. I'm actually like that command. I like this one too. Esteem your leaders highly. I love this command. Go, Paul. Love your leaders. Getting better. <laughs> Six. This is my sixth command. I don't know if you're keeping count. Be at peace with other church members. Love that. Nothing hurts worse a church than fighting church members with each other. Six. Admonish the idol. Wait a minute. I thought that was the pastor's job. Apparently it is, but apparently it's yours. Seven, encourage the faint-hearted. Why don't you go see the pastor? Apparently you're supposed to do it. Eight, help the weak. Nine, be patient with all. Trust me, if you try to do one through seven or eight, you're going to have to be patient because you're going to find out what everyone who leads any ministry, any time, male or female, finds out. You know, I can't, I love it when people step up to lead. Then they'll do an event and everyone in it's blessed, but you'll see the leader and she looks shell-shocked. How'd the event go? It went great. The Lord blessed. How are you feeling? 
I don't know. There was so much to do, so much stress. And then so-and-so says, I wasn't even listening to God. And I smile and think, welcome to ministry. So you better be patient with all. Ten, see to it that others aren't repaying evil for evil. Okay, you see someone repaying evil for evil. Well, she said this, so I say that. Say, you know, maybe we shouldn't do that. Maybe you got to stop doing it yourself. Always seek to do good to one another in the church. Do good to one another. But then he says to everyone, presumably not in the church, always, that's 12 things. Wow, you guys have a lot of work to do. I'm going to go home, stick, put my feet up, and just let me know how you're doing. <laughs> See, I need to do the work too. But as you look at these 12 things, and think how often are the, is this the normal expectation of the average church member in the average Christian church, how often do you think this is actually going on? There's a big difference between this and the consumer-driven Sunday-only behavior that we can fall so easily into, isn't there? Disciple-making activity is to be the normal work of every Christian. You may say, well, oh, wait a minute. i, I got to stay home all the time and take care of all these kids and wipe their noses. And... That's disciple-making? If you're dragging people to this church from your house, those are fellow Christians. Start acting like it. There's people who go home and fight with their husbands and wives like cats and dogs. They cuss all the time. And, and you know one of the worst things, and this sounds self-serving, but I've seen it happen enough that i got to say it, and I just happen to be the pastor. One of the worst things you could do is go home and run down your pastor or your other leaders if you have kids. I've seen it. I've, seen, I've been in ministry long enough to see them grow up. The kids who have the hardest time walking with Christ when they're growing up, growing up in the church, are the ones who constantly hear mom and dad or one or the other throwing the pastor under the bus or the youth pastor or whoever's leading. You're a disciple maker at home. You're like, well, I, look, I got to work so much. I got to feed my little disciples at home. I have to work 60 hours a week with a bunch of pagans. Perfect. You're in the perfect position to be a disciple maker because step one for making disciples is Jesus always starts with pagans. He never starts with finished products. So you're right where we want you. There's lots of reciprocal commands in the scripture. That's one another's. But let's never forget this, lest you start being a worker bee and miss why you exist on earth. The goal of our instruction is love. What's the greatest? We talk about the Great Commission. The greatest commandment is love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself is tacked right on afterwards by Jesus. Listen, love God, love others. Here's what's in that. That's the center of your world. I thought you said disciple-making was. Wait a minute. To love God is to be a disciple. To love others is to make them. Right? It all fits. So I invite you to join the work. Now, many of you I know are in the work So let's just all join Paul every day. Look how Paul defines his life. Him we proclaim, Colossians 1, 28. Him we proclaim. We proclaim Jesus everywhere we go. And and when people get saved, we warn everyone and we teach everyone with all the wisdom we can muster. 
Why? That we may present every single one mature in Christ. He's looking at the last day. And then he says, for this I toil, struggling with all his energy, his power, that he powerfully works in me. I give my all so he can work in me, so I can build up my brother and sister in the church, so that when they stand before God, my joy is watching him say to her, well done. And I had a part in it. That's what I'm inviting you, Harvest Community Church members, to embrace as your life. That's how we make a healthy church. Always remembering it's his power. We have this great treasure, the Bible says, in broken clay pots. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Harvest Community Church. We invite you to join us at any one of our four campuses located in Catanning, Petrolia Valley, Indiana, and Freeport. For more information, check us out on the web at harvestpa.org.